So on March the 14th, 2004, Daniel Tammet broke the European record for reciting pi from memory. Now, you know that pi is the mathematical constant that is the ratio of a circle's circumference to its diameter. For five hours and nine minutes, he recited 22,514 digits. 3.14 and the rest. Without error. How did he do this? Well, Temet has Asperger's. It's a condition that allows him to be extraordinary in activities such as Memorizing numbers, learning languages. For instance, he learned Icelandic in a week. But such brilliance has its drawbacks. In his memoir, Born on a Blue Day, Inside the Extraordinary Mind of an Autistic Savant. Listen to what he recalls. He says, I still remember vividly the experience I had as a teenager, lying on the floor of my room, staring up at the ceiling. I was trying to picture the universe in my head, to have a a concrete understanding of what everything was. In my mind, I traveled to the edges of existence and looked over them, wondering what I would find. In that instant, I felt really unwell, and I could feel my heart beating hard inside me, because for the first time, I had realized that thought and logic had limits and could only take a person so far. This realization frightened me, and it took me a long time to come to terms with it. In Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 12 through 18, the text that is before us today we meet and hear the voice for the first time of our sage teacher who metaphorically is lying flat on the floor staring up at the ceiling unnerved by the frightening realization of the limits of wisdom. Let's stand and hear God's word. I, Kohelet, I, the teacher, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done 
under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity, all is absurdity, and a striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after the wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. This is God's word. Let's pray. Speak, O Lord, and fulfill in us all your purposes. Open our eyes that we may see, our ears that we may hear, and our hearts that we may understand. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You see them. So I gave you a really long introduction to Ecclesiastes last week one of the most enigmatic books in the Bible. Before we get in this day to hear the words of the teacher as it relates to wisdom, there's one other matter of introduction that I want to bring before you today that I think we need to deal with. Because you may find it a little, uh, it's a little disturbing if we think about it quite honestly. In the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, Ecclesiastes is a book that makes us deal with silence. There are a lot of words in Ecclesiastes. The silence that I want you to recognize is that God never speaks in Ecclesiastes. Not once. Ecclesiastes is the only book where God seems to be completely and utterly silent. The author appeals to no divine revelation, only to natural human reason and sense observation. God is only the object of his quest, not the subject of his quest. Peter Kreef notes that in Job, God is also silent except for the beginning and the ending. But he says those two passages make the difference between Job and Ecclesiastes. Listen to this. Because God speaks, Job has everything, even though he has nothing. In Ecclesiastes, because God is silent, Ecclesiastes has nothing even though the teacher has everything. So how do we deal with God's silence? 
One of the things that we have to recognize is that these are no less divine words. These are no less divinely inspired words. These are no less um, meaningful words for us to hear. As one friend said of this book, these are fit words. These are just not final words. Do you remember um, years ago the, the, the television station that has a peacock as its mascot would occasionally do public service announcements? And at the end of the public service announcement, a star and a jingle would come across your screen as you were reminded that the more you know, apparently something benefits you. I don't know. Or maybe you were a, someone that watched an animated uh, cartoon series back in the 80s about uh, certain general infantrymen that would have a moral lesson at the end and they would have this aha moment and the and the uh, uh, general infantryman, let's call him Joe, <laughs> would tell the young child why there are young children there in a battlefield. I don't know, but here they are. The more you know, knowing is half the battle, right? Well, what's the other half of the battle? Fighting? I don't... Anyway, I, I, we weren't supposed to understand. We were just supposed to buy the toys. That's really how that worked. There is the sense in which wisdom, knowledge, understanding is supposed to be the thing that will solve all of the world's problems. Not to drop too many pop culture references, it'll make some of you twitch. But if you go to that big amusement park in Florida, that has another animal as its mascot. You go to the land of tomorrow. What's it all about? Progress. Human innovation. All the things that were once befalling us have suddenly been made right. The one question that you might keep in your head as we study Ecclesiastes is, is perhaps a question that this book wants you to hear. What are you chasing? What are you chasing? For some of you, you're chasing understanding. You're chasing wisdom. The teacher had before him all the resources necessary to undertake an exhaustive study. And what was the result? What was the, the final paper? What was the TED talk that the teacher stood up and gave about his, his findings? Two things. Wisdom can't change reality. And wisdom increases our sorrow. First one. Wisdom can't change reality. He gives in this section a statement and a proverb. So look, verse 13, And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given the children of man to be busy with. Here's the first thing that we, that we can say. Do you want brilliance? I mean, just imagine the most brilliant, the most accomplished, the most academic, 
the most savvy intellect that there is, the teacher has it. Do you want um, resources? The teacher possesses them. Do you doubt the veracity, the depth, the scope, or the structure of the quest for which the teacher has set out? Try him. And what did he find? He found that even the highest human wisdom can't change reality. Look at verse 14. He says in verse 14, I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all of it is absurd. All of it is vanity, a striving after the wind. So what's the image that the teacher is using here? Uh, it's the image of catching the, the wind. It's the image of um, thinking that we can contain it. What he found is that uh, making sense of the toil and the struggle of all that happens on this earth is like trying to herd the wind. It is impossible. The proverb that he gives us in verse 15 um, gives us two more pictures, two more images to consider. One of them is, is like trying to, make, to take a bent steel bar and then just bend it straight again. Have you tried to do this before? Okay, maybe not steel. Maybe that's not your, your thing. Maybe a pipe cleaner. Have you taken a pipe cleaner before and bent it and then tried to straighten it back out again? How'd that work for you? Did you get all of the imperfections out of it? Did you get it just as perfectly straight as could be? Or maybe a paper clip, trying to straighten a paper clip out. Or the other uh, picture in verse 15, and what is lacking cannot be counted. It's like taking five blocks and four blocks and saying, but they equal ten. They don't. They equal nine. But it's that same sort of vanity, that same sort of absurdity of trying to take what is lacking and actually make something complete and full out of it. And, and this is the part where he gets personal. Back in verse 13, he says, it is an unhappy business, an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I mentioned this last week, but I want to reiterate this. The tensions that are there in Ecclesiastes should be respected as they are rather than rushing to revise them. And one of the tensions that we first um, want to try and run to is to say, oh, no, 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 no. We as Christians know the right answer to this. It's not an unhappy business. The catechism even tells us our chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's the most happy business of them all. First of all, kudos for memorizing your catechism. Secondly, stop it. Don't try and smooth out the peaks and the valleys of Ecclesiastes, at least not quite yet. Because the thing that we have to remember is that the teacher is not someone outside of Israel. One of those poor, pagan, lost souls that just don't know any better. Now, here's the thing is, the teacher is a faithful Israelite. 
as one commentator notes, he says, it would be our reflex, perhaps, to want to judge the teacher's orthodoxy, perhaps even his emotional stability, as we come across some stunning statements. And we should bear in mind that although evaluating the teacher's words are certainly in order, we must first enter in to the conversation as a participant rather than a judge. We actually have to hear the whole work in its finished form before we can bring a final evaluation to it. We have to be patient listeners, participants in a conversation, even though the conversation appears jumbled and belabored at times. So in a previous lifetime, I was, uh, I was a choir director. And there is a bit of a grind, as, as we know, um, of uh, having to always have a new choir anthem every Sunday. And let's face it, um, just like sermons, they can't all be winners. As Jimmy Davis would remind me every Monday morning, not every Monday morning, that sounds bad. Many, okay, many Monday mornings sounds, he would say we can't always ring the glory bells. Now that was meant to comfort me. It wasn't because every sermon, no, I don't know. Anyway, it's fine. Jimmy says hi, by the way. <laughs> I would tell my choir when they would grumble about the piece that you can't judge whether or not you like the piece of music until you've learned it, mastered it, and offered it. Then you can tell me you don't like it. That's fine. I didn't write it. I'm not getting paid for it. It's okay. But don't complain about it until you've heard the whole thing. But this accusation of pointing a finger at God and saying, this is an unhappy business you've given the people of Adam, the children of man. It's a forceful statement. The teacher's issue is with God and what God has done in putting humanity through this grievous task of searching out what life is all about and what makes life worth the effort. I mean, think about it. You've experienced the madness of some of this, haven't you? That a woman who takes care of herself, works out, eats well, drops dead at age 37, and a chain smoker who uh, sees the cheeseburger as the bottom of the food pyramid lives to the ripe old age of, the mid, of their mid-90s. You've seen some of this madness. You've experienced life. You could easily say that the teacher is mad at God. And as such, we could, we could actually think of Ecclesiastes like a proverbial, like an extended psalm of lament. In the Psalms of Lament, the psalmist describes the grave disconnect between what, um, who he is as an Israelite, what he as an Israelite is to expect about God and the world, and what he is actually experiencing living in the tensions and the turmoils of life. 
Because Ecclesiastes is more than just the, the musings of a philosopher in an academic classroom, but no, instead is the, um, is the actual life and learning of a teacher who has gone to sought and to, to seek out and find answers to life's most vexing and perplexing questions. It's different than a, than a disconnected academic. He's actually experiencing it. And as one who is experiencing it, as one inside of the covenant community, looking at everything and struggling, he is perhaps on the verge of, of total skepticism. And maybe that resonates with you. Maybe you're okay with coming in and, and doing the church thing because it's expected of you, but deep down, really deep down, you're just one good push away from becoming a total skeptic. In these opening verses, we find our teacher struggling with the complete resignation that has come when he has realized that things are the way they are and they simply cannot be changed. Crooked things stay crooked. Lacking things remain lacking. And it isn't just that way, but the stinging reality, friends, is that God made it that way. Here's what Dr. Peter N. says. He says, when modern readers read Ecclesiastes, we are confronted with the words of an Israelite, a deeply, a deeply religious man, to be sure, with significant struggles. He's not someone who doesn't know God and is trying to make sense of life apart from him. He knows how things are supposed to be, and yet his experience doesn't mesh with the ideal. Um, this is not to suggest that the purpose of the book is for readers today or for ancient Israelites to try to emulate such deep struggle. But it is to impress upon us that in an effort to apply Ecclesiastes to our lives today, we should not be so eager to soft pedal the many jarring statements that he makes. It's what I've said to you. Many times, if your theological system looks like it was professionally gift-wrapped by an employee at Macy's and doesn't look like my four-year-old wrapped it for you, I would encourage you to consider that you may have the, a theological system that's not present in the Bible. Because the Bible doesn't wrap up into neat packages with tight corners and pretty bows. There are parts of the package sticking out on one side and sides that look like they've been smashed in by an 18-wheeler on the other side. And that's not to say that it's not God's Word. That's simply to say that it's complicated, isn't it? Because it is God who is sovereign. It is God who is the one who is calling all the shots. It is the reason why the problem of evil is a problem. For those of you that were back with me in the suffering and the, and the, and the sovereignty of God class, you remember the syllogism that is the problem of evil. If God is all powerful, he can stop evil. If God is all loving, he wants to stop evil and yet evil exists. Therefore, God is either not all powerful or not all loving.
Ecclesiastes is the question for which the rest of the Bible is the answer. And in a few weeks, I'm going to consider uh, wisdom once more, as the teacher does in chapter 2, verses 12 through 17, and deal with this holy hatred of life. That just made you uncomfortable because I made an alliteration and you didn't like the second word. But there are a few things that I want to invite you to struggle with along with me in the text this week. There are so many things that we are powerless to change, people we can't manage, problems we can't solve, longings we can't satisfy. We can't bend life to our own will simply by the exercise of wisdom. We can't do more or try harder. I thought that when I was going to school to learn how to be a pastor, that most of my job would be this glorious Discovery Channel movie of helping people. But that it wouldn't be exercising church discipline through the thick glass of a prison as someone who went on a cocaine bender had stolen and found himself on the wrong side of the law. Now, listen, I've, I've, I've been there. I've been down the road. If we just figure it out, we can fix it. You have too. You've studied your spouse and tried to fix them. Don't say you haven't. You studied your kids and try and fix them too. We think if we apply ourselves, know a little more, we can fix it. Isn't that what we do when we struggle? When things that are happening in the world that don't make sense, you say your comfort would be, well, if I only knew why God allowed this to happen, I'd what? I'd feel better. Why? Because you think that knowledge will somehow make you feel better. And do you know what the teacher says to that? Hang on. We're living in a life that refuses to balance, an account that refuses to balance. We can tell that something's missing, but we can't figure out what it is. And even when we make an adjustment to get everything into balance, deep down we know we fudged the figures. Right? why I love all those outtakes from photo sessions. Like you get the one that's all the kids like happy and smiling, but you show all the outtakes and you've got one like the, you know, the kids in a headlock and the other one's screaming and the other one's lost the shoe that literally was there five seconds ago. Those types of things. But you know, you got a great family photo, but you also know what went in there to get to it. The tears were held off just long enough to get the one snapshot. Now look, wisdom increases our sorrow because the teacher goes on and listen to what he says. He says, verse 16, I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. And I perceived that this also is but a striving after the wind. We would expect, with such a resume that the teacher gives, 
that we would now finally see a positive result. After all, he has given his entire being, his whole heart, to the, to the task that he has, um, that he has set before himself of not only wisdom and knowledge, but also madness and folly. And what does he find? Um, I love this transliteration by Eugene Peterson. He says, I said to myself, I know more and I'm wiser than anyone before me in Jerusalem. I've stockpiled wisdom and knowledge. What I finally concluded is that so-called wisdom and knowledge are mindless and witless, like spitting into the wind. Now he unpacks what he means in verse 18. The reason why even his royal wisdom quest is futile is because the more you know, the worse off you are. It's futile not because of what he cannot find out, but but because of what he does find out. As he puts it, Wisdom is accompanied with sorrow, knowledge by pain. And again, Eugene Peterson, much learning earns you much trouble. The more you know, the more you hurt. And you know this to be true, don't you? I remember when I was growing up and we would take long car trips to go see family relatives or perhaps to go on a, on a vacation, um, right? to some of the beaches right where the hurricane has just made landfall. Um, I would be in my own world, as I often am, in the back seat, and I would hear my parents talking in low tones in the front seat. And I, as the inquisitive child that I was, would say, what are you talking about? My mom would smile, and she'd look back at me, and she'd say, mommy and daddy things. As a parent now, I've had similar conversations with equally, if not more so, inquisitive children. As we talk among mommy and daddy about gymnastics coaches that preyed on children for decades or what the death toll of the hurricane is now. Or that there was another school shooting. There is that longing, isn't there, to go back to those more innocent days, those days when all you had to worry about was being home when mom yelled out the back door that it was time to eat dinner, to make sure that you got to bed on time, How many of you you would say now that the knowledge that you have gained, the understanding that that you have now has led you to happier understandings of the world in which you live? Deep within us, I think there's this realization that knowledge hurts. And so how do we deal with that? Well, we deal with it in a couple ways. One is to do the ostrich in the sand. 
I know I'm about to be eaten by a lion, but here, I'll stick my head in the sand and I'll be safe. Right? So we turn on radio stations that are safe for the little ears in the family. And we guard our time and we guard our steps. We don't talk about the sad stuff. We don't talk about the hard stuff. We don't talk about the unnerving stuff. We're Christians, darn it. And for some, the way of living is ignorance is bliss. As long as they don't see it, as long as they don't know of it, it doesn't exist. But God doesn't allow us to stop and stay there, does He? And and some have said the other approach, well, no, as long as we can grow wiser and wiser still, the, the abiding human spirit within us, if we can just get smarter about it, we can solve our problems. And the Bible won't let us have that one either, as Ecclesiastes will show us. Now, we have to recognize that the more we know, the more we're going to hurt. And some of some of you have experienced this yourself, haven't you? You have gone in with uh, community helpers, with trusted uh, professionals, with individuals that have gone in to your own story as well and begun to unpack those walled gardens that you had kind of, that your body, your mind had put around those memories and those experiences and those traumas and those abuses and those violences that were done to you because something had to give in order for you to survive. And so instead of knowing and remembering, your body taught you how to forget and perhaps you know the best of all the more you know the more you hurt you've been through the sadness of it all and you know the truth of what the teacher says the world offers us nothing but madness and folly and the teacher a faithful Israelite brings the folly of it all squarely before the framer and the former of the world and says, this is an unhappy thing that you have left us with here. Zach S. Wine says this. He says, the preacher does not exalt God, but what he exalts is that aspect of God's character which did not relieve Adam or Eve or the serpent from sin's consequences. We see in the teacher God's brooding and frowning. This is the God who governs us. He did not stop the unhappy business of paradise lost. And we must linger here in that. But Ecclesiastes, again, fit but not final words. The wisdom of Ecclesiastes is instructive, but it is still incomplete. The Apostle Paul would later remind us of the hope that is here, and it's not in the abiding human spirit. Dr. Eswine says this is what we have, have to come to terms with. If there is no escape from what is under the sun, the rescue will have to come from somewhere else. 
We know that there is a time coming when God himself will squint and sweat beneath the sun's light and heat. He will enter the painless, he will enter the pains of this world. He will endure its vanity and feel the pain of it. The teacher could not, with his wisdom, overcome the world. But listen to what Paul reminds us. Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians of these words. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But for those who are called, both Jew and Greek, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men beloved I want you to hear the good news of the gospel but I want you to hear it not as one who dismisses or diminishes the peaks and valleys of the teacher. I want you instead to know that the gospel of Jesus is the safety line that enables you to go to the dark and lamenting places of an absurd world. God didn't jettison us. He joined us. And he offers here to come in and listen as we bring our lamentation and grief of a world that simply makes no sense. Can I tell you, as a seminary trained, professional Christian, who has more books on my shelf now than my wife even knows about. Can I tell you the one thing that makes, makes it possible for me to be able to get up and come in in the morning and go to sleep at night when I hear from friends that talk about friends who are suffering from oppression by the enemy who've just had their life rocked by the diagnosis of cancer where addiction has rattled through their family and ripped it to its core when violence and senselessness and absurdity rule the day do you know what the one thing is that keeps me going God sent Jesus 2,000 years ago and he rose from the dead. And because he's alive, I will be too. Outside of that, I have no idea what else to offer you. Beloved, don't chase wisdom. The dead end street. Instead, look to the one who chose folly as the means of making himself the king.